epistle lesson is found in Romans 5, reading the second half of the chapter, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we recognize that we are dependent upon you. You have promised that you have sent us your spirit, that he will guide us into all truth. And so open our eyes today to see the wonderful truths of your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Last week, we discussed the transition into Romans 5 that Paul, the apostle, is now answering the question, so what? So what of all these truths of the gospel, of human sinfulness and of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus, so what? What does it matter? What does it mean for us? What is its relevance to us? And that question of Christianity's relevance to life in the modern world is not a new one. During the 1700s, French philosopher and critic of Christianity, Voltaire, challenged the relevance of Christianity to life in the emerging modern world. Was it something that people needed to believe? He predicted that within a hundred years of his life that Christianity would be completely removed from the face of the earth. It wasn't relevant. It wasn't going to matter. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, said something very similar. He posited that Unitarianism was going to replace Christianity and Unitarianism was a superior religion because free of doctrinal dogma, that there were no such superstitious beliefs as such as beliefs in the Trinity or the miracles of Jesus or the need for atonement. There were good moral teachings and so those could be held on to, but we were going to move on. That the Bible had some valuable things, but it was filled with, in his words, all sorts of dung. The dogmas weren't just relevant, they just weren't relevant for the new republic. 
The trends continued with educated and prominent thinkers in American history. One minister named Ralph Waldo Emerson decided to leave the ministry in order to be a better minister, but he also left behind all orthodox beliefs. He couldn't see that they were relevant to life in the emerging modern world. You can continue to follow the trail all the way to the present day of educated, smart, sophisticated people, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Bart Ehrman, many people who say Christianity just simply isn't relevant to the life that we live in the here and now. It's antiquated, it's superstitious, and irrelevant. And so what's critical for us, though, is that we must hear them and we must answer that question. What is the relevance of Christianity for life today? Why does it matter? Is it just a neat tradition, something that gives us a warm sentiment? Is the gospel relevant to the life that we actually live in this world? In the second half of Romans 5, Paul is going to continue that argument of the so what, the relevance of the gospel. Because here we find a summary of human history, a theological summary of history that claims to be the defining summary of human existence. That is that we will never understand the riddle of human experience unless we get inside of this summary of human history. And so the Apostle Paul is arguing that Christianity is not only irrelevant, it is essential to understanding your life and for me to understand my life in this world. It speaks to human beings who lived then and there in the first century and before, and it speaks to human beings here and now and in the years ahead that this is the defining summary of history, critically relevant. And as we consider his argument, there's three critical components of it this morning. Because he'll first identify our problem, and then he'll take it a step further in our particular predicament that emerges from that problem. And then he'll lead us into the reversal of that problem and predicament through Jesus. And so first, it identifies our problem. It's important to recognize in verse 12 that a small shift takes place that could go unnoticed. But if you've been with us over the past weeks, we've seen in chapters 1 through 5 that Paul has used the language of Jew and Gentile, whom he was attempting to reconcile in the life of the church. But here, in chapter 5, the words don't appear anymore. There's a shift that takes place. He now speaks of all. And that's because these categories of Jew and Gentile, partially theological, mostly political, somewhat racial, were not sufficient to talk about the main problem of human beings. Rather, what Paul drives towards is that our problem is that we are in Adam. We are in one man who represented us and in whose crime and in whose shame we now fully participate. That applies to all Jew. That applies to all Gentiles. It applies to all human beings. 
that have walked on the face of the earth. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam represented all of us in the Garden of Eden. And it was in his rebellion that we are implicated and we are condemned. He does just as we would have done. Verse 12, we learn that the sin came into the world through the one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all because all then sinned. One trespass leads to condemnation for all. And death now reigns through the one man, Adam. We are to blame for who we are, and we are to blame for what we've done. But it leads to the question of exactly why is that one trespass that Adam committed, why is it so determinative of human history? Why is that moment in the early stages of the world's life, why is that moment so critical? We can't tire of exploring that from Genesis 3. Because God instructs Adam and Eve there not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then, of course, the serpent tempts Adam and says, did God really say this? And Adam fails in the temptation, and he eats of the tree But friends, this is not simply a mistake of picking up the wrong item at the grocery store. It's not pulling from simply the wrong tree by accident. That what is represented there in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that Adam, in eating from that tree, wanted to be the one who determined good and evil, who set right from wrong, who had the opportunity to define reality for himself, not to do so under God's command and under God's decree and under God's authority. And so you see in this eating of the fruit that there is a rebellion. It's a move into autonomy, to be independent of God. And it's critical for us to recognize the depth of the rebellion, the depth of the turn against God. And this turn we all now participate in. Because we too don't want to submit to this God. We don't want to follow him either. And so we go in our own way, a path of independence. But death here in Romans 5 is also not just presented to us as a reality or an event. Death is consequent to our rebellion. We are then sentenced to die because of our sin against God. But death is not just that reality or event. It's also a power we see. If you follow in verse 17, you see what Paul argues here. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. But you see the language of reign come up over and over, where death and sin are nearly personified and they take up a powerful force that rules and governs the world in which we live in. And that's because death captures all the worlds that surround, all the words that surround human rebellion. It speaks of the decay 
It speaks of the social ruin. It speaks of the personal and individual dilapidation that takes place, our own corruption. Nothing about human life was left untouched in the rebellion, and it's all captured by the word death. It's important for us to realize that in Paul's language, just behind it, there's subtle allusion to the story of the Exodus, where Israel labored in Egypt, being held under the power of Pharaoh, dominant and in control, reigning over Israel. And Paul cleverly makes allusion to all of this to explain that this is the story of human beings. It's the story of you and me, that we live under the reign of death, that he is a harsh taskmaster, that what he demands are more bricks and he gives less and less straw. It's misery and ruin. That this is the problem that's defined for us in this universal history, a prevalent problem that leaves nothing and no one untouched. But second, it also identifies our particular predicament inside of that problem. If you follow in verse 13 and then once again in verse 20, we are introduced to a term here, the law. It's referring to the Mosaic law. In chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says that this law is holy, it's just or righteous, and it's good. It was given originally to Moses and to the people of Israel as they were to enter into the promised land. And it was a good gift. But it becomes something else in Israel's life and it becomes something else in our lives. Because as we'll see in the weeks to come, when the law meets our sinful nature, that nature that we have inherited and received and then fully participated in, that the law actually amplifies our predicament, our problem. And it makes it more clear and more plain. Paul says this in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And so the very gift that God gave to Israel actually didn't help matters. It made them worse. And so you may ask the question, was well, the law sinful then? No. The fault is not with the law. The law simply reveals it's a mirror in which we can plainly and clearly see. In verses 13 and 14, Paul is arguing that before the coming of the law, people couldn't plainly see. But now in the coming of the law, trespass increases. That the law cannot erase or ease or neutralize sin. That what the law does, it creates the predicament for us that sin is unmanageable, that it's out of control, that it does have a reign and a rule over us. And this can particularly frustrate us because oftentimes when we begin to understand the problem of sin, we want to roll up our sleeves and do something about it to get some dirt underneath our fingernails and address the issue, to bring sin under our management and control, to get better, to try harder. This is what we want to do. 
But the law was not given so that you could balance out your bad, your demerits, with your good, your merits. Rather, what the law was given to do, one of its roles was to crush you, to increase the trespass, to focus it in so that we can see just the depths of the problem. And so the predicament becomes that we're locked under sin, that we can't do righteous deeds that somehow gain God's favor, that we can't put a claim on God because of being good, that we can't boast in front of God and in front of people. The law came to increase our knowledge and understanding of sin. Several years ago, when I was living in Arlington, Virginia, Melissa and I were slowly renovating a home that was built in the 1930s. It was behind the Pentagon. It was some of the housing built to serve that new military base at that time. And that spring, I adopted two projects, the front entryway and the yard. I started with the yard, tilled it. It was hard Virginia clay. Leveled everything out, planted fescue grass, began to water. And it was amazing, within a month and a half's time, six weeks, I had a lush, green, verdant yard. It was beautiful. It was inviting. Everyone on the block, the kids loved to come and play there. And I found such great pride in that yard. Because with fairly little effort, something beautiful and good had been created. My second project was the front entryway, and this was beyond my competence. And so I hired some handymen to come and address the front doors. There were two doors. One was a glass door and one was a wood door, and there were things not working in the interface between the two doors. And so I asked them to work on it, and they came one day and did so. The next day when I came home from work, there in the middle of my lush green yard was a perfect rectangle of dead brown grass. Immediately, I thought, what did my sons do? <laughs> how did they use Roundup with such precision, you know? Or how had this happened? Who was playing this joke on me, ruining my beautiful front yard? <laughs> this one place of escape and sanity. And then I realized what had happened. I remember the workmen from the day before when they were going to address the door, they took the glass door off and they laid it in the yard, in the middle of the green grass. And then the sun was bright and strong that day and it hit the glass and it became something like a microscope and absolutely fried the grass beneath it. All the grass was receiving the same sunlight but the glass door became a magnifier. It amplified it and burned it. And friends, this is what the law does. It amplifies, it magnifies the problem of human sin. And it reveals it for what it is. And it brings out the disgusting level of our complicity in it. The pervasiveness of it in our lives that we cannot escape, that we cannot manage sin. This is what the law does. And so we have the problem and the predicament. But the relevance of the gospel to this universal human history doesn't stop there. That Christianity is not primarily a dour word. That it doesn't focus there upon human sin. 
Yes, it is something that we emphasize, that we must understand. That problem and predicament must be accepted. But the triumphant word of Christianity is the reversal of that problem and of that predicament. In verses 15 through 17, you see a parallel account. Story of two men, one Adam and one Jesus. However, these verses are written not to say that these two are equivalent. Rather, what we have is the verses highlighting the dissimilarity, the dissimilarity between Adam and Jesus. You see in verse 15 and 16, twice he says, but the free gift is not like, contrasting these two. And friends, there are three contrasts that we have to get inside of here to understand the power of Paul's argument and the relevance of Christianity. Because he's going to point out these contrasts between the gift that's given, the free gift in Jesus, and then the trespass that comes in Adam. And the first contrast is one of power in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What is being argued here is that the work of Jesus overcomes the work of Adam, that it's stronger. Yes, Adam's act is consequential. It becomes determinative for human life. But there is something more ultimate that undoes it. It's not the final word. And Jesus is able to undo all the determination of Adam's act, all the consequence of it for those who receive him. So it's a contrast of power. Second, there's a contrast of scale. If you look in the second half of verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The judgment, the condemnation of all human beings was the result of Adam's one act of rebellion. But you'll see that God's free gift wasn't simply a response to the one act, was it? No, it was a response to all the acts that then followed and were consequent upon the one act. That this is the miracle of miracles, the abounding, superabundant grace of God flooding into the world despite Adam's one act and despite the many acts that we have been complicit in, that we have engaged in. God sends the free gift. There's a difference of scale. The third contrast is one of consequence. If you look in verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Adam's act brought condemnation, a judicial verdict, and it brought death. Jesus' act of righteousness, a reference to his life and his ministry, and then his going to the cross. His act of righteousness brought righteousness and life. This is what the consequence is of Jesus going to the cross, that he undoes the power of Adam's act. 
And this righteousness is the new status that we have in front of God in which we're freed from the guilt and the shame that we have accumulated. And this life refers to the reign of life that you find in verse 21. And it's not simply life in the present. There is that, especially as we'll see next week, but it's life in the world to come. Chapter 8 paints the picture, the portrait of this life of the world to come. We're in the resurrection power of Jesus. The reason that Jesus was raised from the dead is that those same powers that raised him will visit the world and they'll visit our dead bodies as well. And all things will be renewed. And the stain of sin, all of its corruption and decay that affects us on both individual and also corporate and social levels in every way, holistically, the problem and the predicament of sin will be solved. Paul's argument is that the grace of God is infinitely stronger and infinitely more effective than the sin of Adam, than our sin. And so in all the sin and the sadness, the predicament and the problem of human beings, what we see here is the triumph of grace. The triumph of grace that comes through Jesus. But this triumph is for those who receive it. And it is this triumph, though, that still assaults us at that very place in which we've rebelled against God. And I say this especially to people who are religiously inclined. You see, because there's a certain desperation inside of us that when we hear the nature of the problem, that we want to address it and do something about it, that we do want to fix it. And friends, it is this inclination to fix it that runs contrary and across the purposes of God in the gospel. Somerset Maugham, English novelist, 1925, published The Painted Veil. It's the story of a young couple, Walter and Kitty Fane. Walter is a steady, boring type. He's a doctor. Kitty is a social climber and a debutante. They move to the Far East where they are participating in the upper classes of life in Hong Kong. Kitty quickly engages in an extramarital affair. She found herself indifferent towards her husband. She was shallow and celebrated it. Walter's crushed by the revelation of the affair. He ends up giving his life in service of those who had cholera on the mainland. He drags Kitty along with him and she sees the suffering and it is in the face of the suffering that she's also confronted with her own shallowness. You could say the problem of human sinfulness hits. She experiences not only the problem, but the predicament. She goes to a local convent where Walter had served before he died. And there, sisters were also caring for patients with cholera. And she offers herself to the service of the head sister, and the sister accepts. But then as she's leaving, the sister turns to her and says this, you know, my dear child, 
that one cannot find peace in work or in pleasure, in the world or in a convent, but only one's soul. And it's this peace that Jesus offers to all who receive him. It's this peace, righteousness, and life that we're not be invited into a works relationship where God, where we have to put a claim on him and we have to earn our way there. But friends, when we live in that way, we are perhaps most profoundly expressing the rebellion of Adam where we don't want to be dependent upon God. We want to be independent of him. We want to be autonomous. We want to put a claim on him and say, God, you must give me life because I myself am righteous. It's the archetype of human sin. But friends, when we experience the problem and the predicament, and we see that it's only in the reversal of that that comes through Jesus, a free gift that we can only receive by faith. It's there that the riddle of human experience begins to become clear and plain, that the relevance of Christianity to all of our world's weakness and its tiredness, its weariness, its sickness, begins to be tied together in hope of God raising that world and renewing it and bringing it to what Paul says, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the direction and the hope and the relevance of the gospel. And so as we enter into these events of Holy Week, yes, we'll drop down into the depth of the sadness of sin, its problem and predicament, and begin with us on Thursday and Friday And then return on Sunday for the exclamation point. Don't miss any of it. And find yourself lost in that summary of human experience that's here in Romans 5. The problem, the predicament, but then the reversal. Because it's here that we're led to soar into heights. It's here that we're led into the very presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us and what he promises to do on our behalf. Let's pray.